Hey, turn in your copy of God's Word to the book of Hosea. I'll give you about 30 minutes to find it. Uh, if you need a Bible, by the way, we have a resource table over here. Uh, we've got some Bibles back there. If you don't have one for some reason, please grab one off that table. If you don't have one at home, uh, please keep it. Let that be our gift to you today as well. We'll be going to Hosea chapter 12 this morning. So I would assume that we're all familiar with the concept of family trees and like doing genealogical work. Some of us have maybe done some of that on, you know, Ancestry.com or some of these other things that are out there. Uh, We've spent time researching our ancestors, our grandparents, our great-grandparents, and so on and so forth. Um, But often in doing genealogical research, our information is limited, like our knowledge is somewhat limited, even with somewhat recent family, like my great-grandmother. Like, I, I never knew my great-grandmother, but she was alive, you know, just a few years before I was born, so not that long ago. I know her name, but I don't really know a lot about her. I, I don't know where she came from. I, I'm sure I could do some research and figure it out, but it's just not a part of our kind of family story at this point in time. I definitely don't know anything about like the circumstances of her life or any challenges that she faced in her life or any like illnesses maybe that she had. Like all of that stuff is, is just kind of not easily available anymore. It, and, and those things tend to get lost over time, those kind of detailed points in a family tree, details about life circumstances and about context and about the things that ultimately kind of shape families and shape generations. That's why there, in addition to just kind of the typical family tree or just kind of the org chart of your family, there's also something that's called a genogram. Y'all may have heard of this before. A genogram is like a family tree in that it shows you who's who, but it also gives like a context for people. Uh, and their situations and their relationships. And so here are a couple of examples of genograms. This is like a medical genogram. Uh, So, you know, anytime you go to the doctor, you're going to learn about your medical history, right? And you guys may not be able to see this very well, but for every square, that indicates a male. For every circle, it's a female. And there's a whole, like, legend of content over here that relates to the various colors that you see on this. And each color and each... The way that each color is sort of positioned on the genogram tells you if that person had some particular kind of disease. So in this particular one, these are all different forms of cancer in one particular family. So you can just kind of quickly look at this and see the family medical history to some extent, and that can be beneficial. This one is more of a relational genogram, and it shows you uh, trauma that has happened throughout family history. So sometimes a genogram like this will show you uh, divorces that have taken place. You see a little squiggly line up here in the top left corner. That indicates that there was abuse in that relationship. Um, At certain places, it tells you if somebody had depression or PTSD or anxiety disorder. And then there's some more information about uh, Andre died in a swimming pool accident, and younger brother was very distraught. So it's like immensely detailed, and this is the kind of stuff for, as you go farther back in time, this is the kind of stuff that gets lost, right? I know my grandmother's name and where she came from, maybe where she was born, who she was married to, but I don't know any of this kind of stuff. Like, did she struggle with depression? No clue. You know, like, did she have a family member who had been ostracized from the family? I don't know. And yet, those things 
shape us, don't they? Like those situations in our families, traumatic situations, shape who we are. So as you can maybe see, this kind of information can be helpful in a variety of contexts. It's always good to know your family medical history, but, but also in the world of psychology and counseling, like a genogram can help you get a handle on your family of origin and why they were the way they were and maybe why you are the way that you are. And um, you see some as well that will map like a family's ethnic heritage and the way that even different ethnicities have come together to form a family. So it's really, it's really kind of fascinating. But the point of all of this is for you to like learn more about yourself. Where do you come from? Where do I come from? Who are my people? What shaped them? Because what shapes them is ultimately to some extent what shapes me. By understanding the unique context of your family, your parents, your grandparents, you're able to understand them better. And maybe you're able to do something like forgive somebody who's hurt you or forgive something that was done to you. Now, the Bible is full of genealogies. If you've ever read the Old Testament, you know that's true. But even the New Testament begins with a genealogy. And there are times when God calls people to to not just consider simply who their forefathers were, but to consider what they did, like who they were and what they went through and what shaped them. And such is the case today. So if you would look with me, we're going to Hosea chapter 12, and we're going to begin in verse 2 of Hosea 12. If you're not familiar, we're in a series right now called The Hidden Prophets. We're walking through 12 books in the Old Testament that I would say are just kind of historically neglected in the American church. They're what are known as the minor prophets in the Old Testament. These are the books of the Bible that more than likely you've never cracked. Like, and if I, if I were to ask you what happens in some of these books, most of us wouldn't have a clue, like Obadiah or Micah or Nahum. Some of these books that I've heard of that, right? But what is it about? And does it have any actual bearing or relevance in my life today? So we've been digging into these. We are currently in our third of these, Jonah. We did Amos, and now we're in Hosea. And today's our last day in Hosea. So let me read this to us. The Lord has an indictment against Judah and will punish Jacob according to his ways. He will repay him according to his deeds. In the womb, he took his brother by the heel, and in his manhood, he strove with God. He strove with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. He met God at Bethel. And there God spoke with us, the Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord is his memorial name. So you, by the help of your God, return, hold fast to love and justice, and wait continually for your God. This is the word of the Lord. So if you're new to Hosea, Hosea is a bit of a strange book, Uh, not only in the story, the narrative of Hosea, but also in how it's organized. Hosea is a prophet, which means he has been sent by God to declare the word of the Lord. And he's been sent specifically to the kingdom of Israel to declare the word of the Lord. At this time, the Hebrew people, the Jewish people, uh, have been split because of essentially a civil war. They've been split into two kingdoms. The northern kingdom, which is the larger of the two, is still called Israel. The southern kingdom, which is where Jerusalem is, the seat of Hebrew worship, is known as Judah during this time. Hosea is from the northern kingdom. He's sent by God to the northern kingdom to declare his word. But what's different about Hosea, though, is 
Not only does God call him to like preach and proclaim, but the Lord also calls Hosea to live a life that is essentially a mirror image of God's relationship to Israel. So the way that this plays out is God calls Hosea to marry an unfaithful, promiscuous woman named Gomer and to have children with her. And Hosea does this, and he's faithful to her. But later we learn that Gomer uh, is still running around on him. She perhaps falls into some kind of slavery, perhaps some kind of prostitution. The scripture is not completely clear on what exactly she gets herself into, but she finds herself in a situation where she's essentially enslaved. And Hosea continues to remain faithful to her and uses his own money to like buy her back out of slavery. So this is what we saw, chapters one through three of Hosea, is this story of their like tumultuous marriage. Um, they're parenting these three kids that have these crazy names like not my people and uh, no mercy. And yet even as she continues to run around on Hosea and even though she remains unfaithful to him, Hosea is called by God to stay faithful and to even go to the great lengths of like purchasing her back out of the situation that she was in. And God says, this is me. This is me in my relationship to Israel. They are continually unfaithful, and I am continually faithful. So we learned about the story of Hosea and Gomer in the first three chapters of this book, but then followed chapter after chapter of essentially poetry where Hosea is decrying just Israel's complete lack of faithfulness to God, just all the ways that they've abandoned God, all the ways that they've lost all sense of relationship and knowledge to God, their worship of other gods, um, the fact that they have put their hope in wealth and military might, the fact that they have turned a blind eye to the plight of the poor and in many cases have oppressed the poor. As a result of all of this, Hosea tells us judgment is coming. And judgment is ultimately coming in the form of the Assyrian army who just a few years after Hosea writes will sweep in and will completely wipe out the nation of Israel, scattering the people to the wind. And yet, in spite of all of this, God is clear that ultimately, ultimately, a redeemer is coming who, just like Hosea, will buy the people back out of slavery. A redeemer who will save them. And we looked ahead to the words of the Apostle Paul who spoke of Jesus as this redeemer and who said to the church in Corinth, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, he says. Why? For you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body, he says. Now today we wrap up Hosea, Hosea by considering the fact that this unfaithfulness was not unprecedented. Right in the history of the kingdom 
of Israel, the Hebrew people, if we're thinking about like the genogram of Israel, like it is just full of disobedience, moments where the people turn their back on God, all kinds of denials, all kinds of betrayals, worshiping a host of different gods in spite of all the incredible and in some cases miraculous things that the Lord had done for them. And so what Hosea does today, what we're going to look at are two instances that are specifically mentioned in our text. One is about Jacob, the grandson of Abraham, who is renamed Israel. That's where the word Israel comes from, the nation of Israel. He's renamed Israel by God. And the second instance that we'll look at in a moment will be the Hebrew people led by Moses out of slavery in Egypt and into the wilderness. And the purpose here, guys, is to show the Lord's prevailing kindness throughout the ages and the people's prevailing ingratitude and unwillingness to follow the Lord. So let's jump into this. Jacob first. Jacob is mentioned in our text that we read just a moment ago. Jacob is one of the three patriarchs of Israel, one of the three sort of founding fathers of Israel. Along with his father Isaac and his grandfather Abraham, they formed the foundation of the Hebrew people. Jacob, however, was not like first in line to be one of the patriarchs, right? If you know the story, it really should have been his fraternal twin brother Esau who received the blessing of their father Isaac. And yet, you may remember how in the story that Jacob, this is in the book of Genesis, Jacob treacherously bought his brother's birthright from him. And it was like a moment of weakness for his brother Esau. Jacob swoops in, scoops up Esau's right as a firstborn. And then he conspired with his mother to fool his elderly, dying, half-blind father into giving him his blessing as the firstborn son. It's kind of a crazy story. And it's a story that's a bit hard for some of us to grasp today because our culture is so different today than it was at that time. More than likely, if you've already put together like a last will and testament, um, you have probably elected to do what most people do, which is if your spouse is still alive, what you have is just gonna pass on to your spouse. Or if your spouse is not alive, more than likely what you have, if you have children, is going to be just divided up among your children. At this point in time, though, the firstborn son specifically was the one who stood to inherit everything. And that wasn't just like a Hebrew thing. That was just kind of a thing, right? Throughout much of human history, that's the way that things have kind of operated, really until a much more modern time. And it was the oldest son, the firstborn son, who not only would have been inheriting everything, but he would have had to be in the position of like caring for his mother or caring for any younger siblings. Any other male children who were adults at that point in time would have just sort of been left to fend for themselves. And so we come here to the story of Jacob, and Jacob is not the rightful heir. He's not the firstborn son. He's not the one who stands to receive everything. And yet, as he swindles his older brother, even though he's just like a few seconds older, like swindles his older brother out of his inheritance and then fools his father, he takes possession of um, the family inheritance. As a firstborn son myself, this idea of the firstborn receiving everything Sounds great, right? 
And yet, for Jacob, he wasn't having it. He wasn't interested in it. And so he took steps to remove Esau as the heir. Now, this is significant, though, not just because of what Jacob did, but also because of the fact that his family lived under a covenant with God. If you go back to his grandfather's story, the story of Abraham, you will remember that God specifically made a covenant with Abraham to bless his descendants, to make them as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand in the sea, and to ultimately give them a land uh, to be their own, a place um, for their nation to grow and develop, the place known as the land of Canaan. So they're living under this covenant. And yet Jacob steps in and effectively changes the family line. But this didn't alter God's promise. It's worth noting, though, that Jacob gets a taste of his own medicine. Uh, He falls in love with his cousin, Rachel, because they're from Arkansas. And he goes to work for her father, Laban. Anybody here from Arkansas? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. That's not fair. Uh, He goes to work for his father-in-law, Laban, for seven years to earn her hand in marriage. However, when the time comes for Laban to give Rachel to him as his wife, he gets swindled himself. He gets tricked and learns that his wife is actually Leah, her older sister, and I think by all accounts, not really the looker of the family. He finds that she is his wife, and then he's forced to labor for another seven years for the hand of Rachel. Now, the point here is that in spite of sin and treachery and scheming, God maintains his promises. God upholds his covenant. There is this whole strange scene where Jacob, and it mentions it in our text today, where Jacob wrestles with an angel and once again, like, demands to be blessed. He he demands God to bless him. And as our text mentions, he prevails somehow in this. He wrestles with God and demands to be blessed, and somehow prevails, and yet he is never the same again. What the text tells us is that he comes away with like an injury to his hip, like he's physically affected because of his wrestling with the angel, and his name is changed into a new name, and the name is Israel, and it's a name that reflects what he's been through, right? It's a name that reflects the fact that he has, has like wrestled with God, or um, he, he strove with God, or something to that effect, But then he goes on to father 12 sons who become the patriarchs of the 12 tribes of Israel. And in just a few generations, God's promise to make his descendants as numerous as the sand and the sea is actually starting to come to fruition. Like they are flourishing and growing and developing. So that's kind of scene one this morning as we're walking through just a couple points in the genogram of Israel. That's scene one. Here's scene two. We fast forward four or five hundred years to Egypt. Due to a famine, the entire family of Jacob, you may recall, has to move to Egypt to survive. But within a few generations, they've grown and grown and grown and grown and grown to the point where the Egyptians are worried, man, these people are going to like rise up and take us over. So the Egyptians enslave them, and they set them to work building some of the great monuments of Egypt. And yet, God's promise remains So he raises up Moses, and he sends Moses to lead the people out of Egypt and back to the land that God had promised to them, to Canaan. Now look with me at the next chapter, chapter 13. Look at verse 4. 
He says, but I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. You know no God but me. And besides me, there is no Savior. It was I who knew you in the wilderness, in the land of drought. But when they had grazed, they became full. They were filled, and their heart was lifted up. Therefore, they forgot me. Moses led the people out into the desert. God saves them from the forces of Pharaoh, right? There's the whole Red Sea thing. God provides for them in the wilderness. He gives them bread, just appears on the ground. Water comes out of rocks. They see a massive influx of quail when they're starving for meat. Like There are all these incredible things that happen. And yet, there very quickly is a contingency of people in the wilderness, in the desert, following Moses, who want to return to Egypt, right? Who want to turn around and go back. After everything that has happened, if you remember like the plagues that came on Egypt and the army chasing after them and the way God has provided for them, and yet they get out there and they go, yeah, but there's not just prevalent water and we're getting real thirsty and there's not meat for us to eat. Man, uh, like when we were slaves in Egypt, we had meat at least. Yeah, we were slaves, but there was something to eat. And yet they want to turn around and go back. They struggled to be faithful to God during that season, even though the Lord was sustaining them, and even though they had seen awesome stuff. But ultimately, God brings them through. Despite their sin, despite the ways that they betray him, turn their back on him, God brings them through. He blesses them. He gives them land and prosperity. And what do they do? What do they do? It's verse 6. But when they had grazed, they became full They were filled, and their heart was lifted up. Therefore, they forgot me. That's what God says. Isn't that amazing? So when I fed them, and when I had given them everything that they needed, and when I provided for them in all the ways that they hadn't been provided for, and all the ways they couldn't provide for themselves, when I had done all of this for them, then they forgot me. Isn't that incredible? In the midst of God's abundant provision, even after seeing the things that they had seen, they forgot God. And if you remember from last week, that was Hosea's primary accusation against the people of Israel. He said, you have no knowledge of the Lord. And he didn't just mean like intellectual knowledge. The Hebrew word there, da'ath, that we talked about last week, that word indicates more experiential knowledge than like, head knowledge or book knowledge. It's like you don't have an intimate knowledge of the Lord. You might know about him a little bit. You might know some things about him, but but you don't like know him, know him. If you really knew him, he contends, you wouldn't be able to worship all of these other gods with a clear conscience. Like if you really understood who God is, how enormous he is, how powerful he is, there's no way you could do this. It's, it's an intimate knowledge. That's why this same word is, is used for intercourse in the Old Testament. So Adam knew his wife, right? It, it, it implies this deep level of intimacy, right? We are together. As Paul talks about, it's like a one flesh type thing almost. Do you know him? Hosea says, no, you don't. You don't know him. You still have some of the religious accoutrement. You still participate in some of the religious things. But yet you're also worshiping all these other gods. And if you really knew him, if you really knew his power, if you really knew what he was capable of, 
if you really could grasp that in some way, you wouldn't be doing the things that you're doing. The only explanation is you just don't know him. You don't know him. And this is where it turns to us. Like many of us, in fact, probably most of us, have dubious genograms, right? When you start walking back through history, there's probably been some rough stuff that has happened in your family. There have probably been some difficult seasons. There have possibly been some troubled people. Maybe there are people in your life, I hope so, who love the Lord, but there are also probably people in your family history who didn't. There may be people in your family history no one even talks about anymore, right? It's like they've been scrubbed. The same thing is happening here with Israel. All of our lives are filled with like the repercussions of sin, just like Israel. Like it becomes this sort of generational thing for them. And yet God remains faithful. Jesus makes it clear that his gospel, though, was not for those who already thought themselves to be well. But instead, his gospel was for those who had great need, who were sick in his language. His gospel, his good news... It wasn't for those who were like self-sufficient and without need. It was precisely for those who had great need, who saw themselves as having great need. For the Israelites, in their seasons of poverty or in their seasons of slavery, like they had no means to sustain themselves. And so, of course, they cried out to God. What else were they going to do? And yet, in the seasons of great wealth and in great power, they forgot him. Hosea is riding into a season in the kingdom of Israel where there is great wealth, there is great prosperity, there is great military might. And so, what has happened? And listen, we are no different, are we? We're no different. I think this is precisely why Jesus speaks so negatively about wealth. While we all want to believe that wealth is a great thing, God who sees everything sees like the deceitfulness of wealth and how it tricks us into embracing self-reliance instead of reliance on God. Same thing's true of power. In a country with seemingly the most powerful military on the planet, it can be easy to just put our trust in that rather than in God. That's something the Israelites are doing as well. So, so that's why the gospel, I think, tends to catch like wildfire in third world settings. It, it's not because people are like stupid or uneducated or ignorant. It's because reliance on God makes the most sense to those who have no other option but to rely on God. Consider who Jesus calls blessed in the Beatitudes, the poor in spirit, the meek, the persecuted, those who mourn, those who are reviled for his sake. These are the ones, Jesus says, who are blessed. The good news of the gospel makes the most sense to those who have no other hope, those who've tried to put their hope in other things and go, that doesn't last, that doesn't stay. Right? That, that can't actually do anything for me. I've tried this, I've tried this, I've tried this. I'm coming up short every time. It, it's those folks to whom the gospel makes the most sense. When we're a people who seemingly have no need, what need do we have of Jesus? What need do we have of a, of a redeemer who will purchase us out of slavery if we don't see ourselves as being in slavery to begin with? 
I think it's one of the biggest challenges we face in presenting the gospel here in Shreveport, in a place that is so churched, in a place where everybody seemingly who's from here has grown up going to church. The gospel is not good news because I don't really see myself as being in great need. I don't really see myself as being a bad person. And and also, I've just heard it so much in my life, it's become commonplace to me. It's become normalized to me. If you tell me about Jesus and what he's done, yeah, yeah, I know that story. I know about it. How many of you were raised in a family that took care of itself and provided for itself and didn't ask other people for help? Me? That's like the American way, isn't it? Like as Americans, we take a lot of pride in our ability to take care of ourselves, in our ability to provide for our families. We talk about men having this mantle from God to provide for our families, and yet God's kind of going, no, 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 that's my responsibility primarily. I'm calling everybody to obedience, but I'm the provider. I'm the sustainer. I'm the one who brings the increase. God stands in opposition to that kind of like self-sufficient, self-serving, self-justifying life because self-sufficiently quick self-sufficiency like quickly becomes a pseudo-religious belief for us. It becomes a conviction. God does not glory in your supposed ability or my supposed ability to like take care of myself. He glories in the one who fully trusts in the Lord, who sees him as the provider, as the sustainer. And his whole problem with the kingdom of Israel at this time was that they were people who in their minds had no need and who thus had no need of God. We've got money. We've got the army. We've got prosperity. We've got nice houses. We've got our stuff. And what was like doubly infuriating to God was the fact that in some cases they were attributing their situation to pieces of wood that they had carved and bowed down in front of. So it's like, not only are you not recognizing that this has come from the Lord, but you're actually attributing it not just to yourself, but to things you've made or other things that God has actually created. This, by the way, is why a like, health and wealth gospel is so unbiblical. This uh, health and wealth gospel would just be this notion that, that, that God, if he's pleased with you, if you have enough faith, that he, he wants you to be wealthy and he wants you to be successful and he wants you to have good health in your life. And yet here's just one of the many instances where the people have all of that stuff and God is completely displeased, right? It is not in any way a sign of God's happiness with them or pleasure with them. In many ways, it is what separates them from him. God says, you don't know me. So what is the answer here? Look back at verse six. The answer is, so you, by the help of your God, so not even on your own here, not even based on your ability or your effort or your tenacity, so you, by the help of your God, return, hold fast to love and justice, and wait continually for your God. 
Go on to chapter 14. Hosea echoes these words again. Return, O Israel, to, your, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take with your words and return to the Lord and, and, and say to him, take away all iniquity, accept what is good, and we will pay with bulls and the vows of our lips. Assyria shall not save us. We will not ride on horses, and we will say no more, our God, to the work of our hands. It's more than likely when you think about like leaving a legacy for your family, that you think about leaving material things behind, that you think about leaving money or a house or property or something like that, something that will be like a financial blessing to your children or your grandchildren, future generations. But how many of us have truly considered the kind of spiritual legacy that we're leaving for our families, that we're leaving for our kids and our grandkids Not so that they will remember us as having been uber-spiritual, but rather, what will they believe to be true of God because of me and my life? Because of your life and your example. Israel was a people that said, our God, to the work of their hands, to things they had made, to things they had fashioned. In that context, that meant that they had literally made objects of worship out of wood or out of gold, things they had bowed down to. But the question for us is, how are we saying our God to the work of our hands? In other words, in what ways are we making our careers or material things or money or power or success or position or accomplishment our default gods? I think it's a temptation for all of us. And the call of Christ is the exact same as Hosea's call to Israel. Repent. Repent. Which is a word that doesn't just mean feel sorry for yourself or feel shame for what you've done. It's a word that means turn from what you've been doing and turn to me or return in the context of Hosea. Be different. Be changed. Submit yourself to the only thing that is lasting and that will sustain you long after money and power and accomplishment have let you down and have left you wanting. Give yourself to Christ fully. Make him your hope. Make him your joy. Make him your sustainer and your provider. Like Seek to know him intimately and imagine the lineage that comes from that kind of trust. Some of you guys are examples of that. You had parents or you had grandparents who were those kinds of people who like you met Jesus through their lives, through their actions, through their experiences. And some of you, it's the opposite. The question is, where does it go from here, right? What does it look like from here? The people of Israel in Hosea's day couldn't change the past. They couldn't go back and undo things that had been done or reverse moments where people had betrayed God. The question was, what are you going to do from here on out? Are you going to continue to do what you think is best, or are you going to turn in faith to God and trust him and allow him to be sufficient? 
And this is the question again for us today. So as we close this morning, let us take just a few moments on our own. Let's bow our heads. I'd like for us to just consider what the Lord might be saying to us today through this text. What is he speaking into your life and heart this morning through his Holy Spirit? What is he revealing to you? For some of us, it could be the ways in which our pursuit of other things in our life have totally taken precedence. What do you give most of your time to? Like, is it a career? Is it the hope of accumulating something? Is it a quest to attain something? What is it? What is it that you long for? What is it that you hope for? Man, if the answer to those things for us is not Christ, then it's not shame on you. The question is just simply, man, how do we start to turn and to move in that direction, to move towards him? And here's what I know. You're not meant to do that on your own. What the scripture indicates to us today is that you can't even do it on your own. Like you need God to intervene in your life and to turn your gaze, to open your eyes, to open your heart to him. We can't just look at like the buffet of religious options out there and, man, I hope I make a good decision here, right? The whole point of this is we've all fallen short of the glory of God. We've all sinned. As our, as our psalm said this morning, there are none who are righteous. And that includes us. We need righteousness to be given to us. And that's what Jesus Christ has done for us. So let us take just a few moments this morning and consider what he might be saying to us through this text. And then I'll close this in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for your word and for the example of scripture. We pray, God, this morning that you would speak to us through your word and through your spirit. God, that you would lead and guide and that we would be quick to hear and obey. Not thinking we know best or that we know better, but instead in faith to submit our lives to you to seek to find our joy and our hope in you, to not look to career or family or success or money or any of these things to define us or to provide us with value, but instead, God, to recognize that all of those things come from you. Father, we love you. We thank you for this time together. It's in your name we pray. Amen.